listening to this podcasted message from the Garden Fellowship. The Garden Fellowship is a new and exciting church located in Burlington, North Carolina. We invite you to learn more about our church by visiting our Facebook page at facebook.com forward slash Garden Fellowship or by visiting our website at gardenfellowship.org. We invite you to worship God through the teaching of His Word. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were filled with fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of a great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord, and this will be a sign for you. You will find the baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. I don't know about you, but it's hard for me to read that passage without hearing Linus say it. All right? I mean, you guys know I'm talking about how Linus actually, reads that. Actually, since you started it, yeah, I mean, you, like, I'm forever scarred. <laughs> But anyway, this is this is the announcement of the birth of Jesus. This is a um, terribly rich passage, one that we can't even possibly begin to do justice for in one sitting. So um, we'll look and see what it has for us today. Mainly today, I want us to notice a couple of things about what it says to us. First of all, I want to notice that it says to us that that Jesus, the child that is born, is Savior. And then secondly, it says to us that the child that is born, Jesus, is Lord. It says He is Savior and He is Lord. Those two things will be very prominent for us as we take a look. But just from to begin from uh, verse 8, we read these words again in verse 8. In the same region there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. So it's interesting, of course, you, no doubt you've heard it mentioned before in a church context of who it is that is the recipient of the initial news of Jesus' birth. This is the first time that his birth has been announced, that anyone, anyone outside of Mary or Joseph is aware that he's been born. And it's significant, of course, that the announcement is made to shepherds, that God chooses shepherds to be the recipients of the initial news of the birth. You know, it's always true that when you have something big and something important to announce, particularly the birth of someone in your family, then isn't it true that the first person that hears that has to be someone of significance? We've had we've had the privilege of, of four times now announcing um, an expectancy that we're expecting, and every time, as, long, as as well as the birth, every time there are certain ones that have to hear that news before others, and if it doesn't happen in that sequence, then it's very bad news. Yeah. Don't post it on Facebook. <laughs> That's right. They can't hear it from other sources that have heard it. So the, pers- the first person to hear the news is a person of significance and a person of importance. And so this is the greatest, the grandest, the most incredible news that mankind has ever heard, and it is the news that Messiah is here. And the people that God chooses to be the first recipients of that are shepherds. Now, we have... I think sort of this romantic image in our minds of, of a shepherd in these times. 
uh, is this sort of noble profession, this uh, humble, reliable, down-to-earth sorts of people. And it is true that shepherds at one time were very much respected in terms of their trade, in terms of their work in ancient Israel, but this was not true for Jesus' day. Back in the time of David, Abraham, the time of the patriarchs there, it was a time in which shepherds were more respected. But over time, the occupation of being a shepherd is one that has gradually become to be seen as um, something that requires little to no skill, something that people that are unable to do other occupations, then they could certainly do the shepherding occupation. And so it has gradually become a thing that children do. Children and those who are incapable of doing other sorts of, uh, of, of high, maybe higher skilled tasks or trades or something of that nature. So it's become sort of that trade that those people do it that really don't need anything else going for them in order to be able to be a shepherd. And so along with that, a great deal of distrust has grown up around the profession. By the time of Jesus, shepherds were, were known as people that could not be trusted. Their word could not be taken for face value. Uh, the word of a shepherd was not admissible in a court of law as evidence, much, uh, much like if you're familiar with women of Jesus' day. Their, their word was not admissible in a court of, ev- of law as evidence. The same thing for, shepherd, for shepherds because they were considered to be so untrustworthy. In addition to that, they were also considered to be highly immoral. They were considered to be liars and thieves. They couldn't be trusted. And the reason that they were considered to be immoral and untrustworthy was not because so much that they were, but it was because they were perpetually unclean. They were perpetually unclean because, in in those days, in order to be considered holy and clean and those sorts of things, you, you needed to go to the temple on a regular basis. However, the, the occupation of shepherd was a seven-day-a-week, 24-hour-a-day occupation. If you were a shepherd, that was what you were all the time. You never left your sheep. And so sheep don't need care six days a week or, or 18 hours a day. They need care 24 hours a day, seven days a week. So they were unable to attend the temple. As a result, they were perpetually unclean. And because they were perpetually unclean, they were considered immoral and untrustworthy, and um, very much the bottom rung of society. The, the only thing lower in their society that a male could be would have been to be a beggar or a leper. Be, beside a beggar or a leper, they were the bottom rung of society. And God chooses them to make this announcement to. He chooses those whose word can't even, in the view of society, can't even be trusted to the extent that it's admissible as evidence in a court of law. And it's interesting to me that the two pieces of news that are the most important news that mankind hears, which is the birth of Messiah and the resurrection of Messiah, both of those indescribably significant events, God chooses people whose word, among other people, isn't even considered trustworthy enough to be evidence. Women, of course, were the ones who found the empty tomb. Shepherds were the ones who heard the news that Jesus is born. God chooses the most unlikely of people to hear the news 
of this Messiah, the Savior that is born. So in the same region, there were these shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. So the region that he's speaking of is the region of Bethlehem. Later on, he's going to call it the city of David. Unto you is born this day in the city of David. Now, when we think of the city of David, you think you might think of Jerusalem because Jerusalem is known as the city of David. However, Jerusalem was sort of the adopted city of David after David conquered Jerusalem. Later on, it became came to be known as the city of David. Bethlehem was where David was born. Bethlehem was where David grew up. So this was the original city of David. And this region is where the shepherds are tending their flock. Now the region is about 10 miles from Jerusalem. In those days, it was a separate village, a separate population center from Jerusalem. Today, if you were to go to Jerusalem, then you you would drive from Jerusalem into Bethlehem with no stopping of, of population, kind of like Burlington and Elon. You don't necessarily know where one stops and the other one uh, begins. That's how Bethlehem and Jerusalem are today. But in this day, there would, there would have been a separate region between the two, about 10 miles. The, the region of Bethlehem, of course, is where David grew up. So these very hills, the very place where the shepherds were tending this flock may have been the same place, the same fields in which David tended his flocks many centuries before this. But it's also been noted that the flocks in the region of Bethlehem were often known as a place where flocks were, were kept for the insatiable appetite of Jerusalem for lambs. Jerusalem in those days had just an unquenchable appetite for lambs because of the sacrifices. The sacrifices were ongoing every day, every day of the year. And then, of course, Passover would come once a year. It's been estimated that when Passover would happen, as many as a half million lambs were sacrificed at Passover. So you can imagine the, the need for sheep, the need for lambs was tremendous. And many of these shepherds would raise sheep specifically for that. So it's very possible that this flock of sheep was a flock of sheep that was used to supply Passover lambs, which would make it incredibly ironic that here are these shepherds watching over sheep that will become Passover lambs and the birth of the Passover lamb is announced to them. So it's incredibly ironic. Here's these shepherds watching their sheep. They receive the news of the great shepherd, the good shepherd has been born. They're keeping watch over their flock by night. Um, one image that comes to mind there that probably is not correct is this image that I have of a, of a shepherd sitting on the ground or sitting on the rocks and looking out over the hillside at his flock of sheep, <clears throat> which is probably not a correct image for how shepherds watch their flocks at night. Oftentimes what they would do is they would build just a, a very short temporary type of, of wall just out of brush or sticks uh, because sheep aren't uh, like other livestock, they won't burst through a fence like other livestock. And so sometimes just a small brush-type fence can keep them pinned up. So what often they would do at night is they would build this fence out of brush and leave the door the doorway to the, to the area open, and the sheep would go in there, and then the shepherds would lie across the doorway. You may have heard that before. They would lie and they would sleep across the doorway. The idea was if... 
a shepherd tried to get out it, during the night, he wouldn't go through the brush. He would step over the shepherd, and the shepherd would know that he's escaping. So the shepherd was literally the doorway. So what I think of there is, of course, Jesus in John's Gospel that says, he says, I'm the good shepherd, but I'm also the door. I am the door. This, I am how you enter into this flock. So Jesus wasn't, wasn't necessarily mixing his metaphors there when he called himself the shepherd and the door because in a real sense, the shepherds were doors. So this is probably what's happening. The shepherds here are sleeping. They are acting as the doorway for their sheep. And here comes... Well, he's this. also the sheep too. Isn't that something... I mean, he's also the Lamb of God. It's, yes. it's like he's doing everything. Yes. Once again, he does it all. We do nothing. That's right. That's right. He is the good shepherd, and he's the Lamb. Exactly right. So in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. Verse 9, And an angel of the Lord appeared to them. Now, we're not told here which angel this is. Gabriel was the one that announced to Zacharias and, uh, Zachariah and Mary. We're not told who announced here. But isn't it interesting to ponder that one angel, this is, the, this is the greatest message ever, even greater than the message given to Mary. You will be the mother of God. This is the message that Messiah is here. And one angel is given the opportunity to give that message. An angel of the Lord appeared to them. And here's the pattern that we see over and over. The glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with fear. And then the pattern goes on that they're, they're told to not fear, and then they're given a message. That's the pattern we see over and over in Scripture. Mankind encounters a sinless being, either an angel or a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus. Mankind encounters sinlessness. He's overwhelmed with fear. He's told to not fear, and then he's given a message. So this is the pattern here as well. The glory of the Lord shone around them. They were filled with fear. The, 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 the picture that we see here of light and brightness reminds me, of course, of um, the Mount of Transfiguration, the, the bright light on top of the mount there, or um, Paul on the road to Damascus as he encounters the risen Jesus, and there's the bright light there as well. So the glory of the Lord shone around them. I wonder if other people saw the light as well, people in the vicinity. And they were filled with fear, and the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of a great joy. Good news of a great joy. And this news will be for all the people. The angel, of course, does not say this news will be for the house of Israel. It's not for the house of Jacob. This is news that is good news for all people. And the news is, Messiah has come, and it's for you. He's for you. Because this is news for all people. He's yours. He's here, and He's yours. It reminds me of, just once again, the clarity that I think that Scripture teaches us of, of how should I put this, the concept that Jesus is ours. He's ours. Not in the sense that we own Him or we possess Him or we control Him, but He's ours in the sense that we are in Him. He is in us. There, there is no separation. There is no, there is no <clears throat> compartmentalization. He is ours. And the assurance that that brings 
is is unspeakable assurance of belonging because he is here and he's ours. This is good news for all people. The doctrine that teaches us of the assurance of our standing with God. It is, of course, if we think back to those days, the Reformation, when, when those who stood against the teachings of the Reformation were so opposed to, to what was being taught, what was being shown through the Scriptures. You may be aware of this fact that, that of all the things that re- the Reformers showed us from the Scriptures or reminded us of from the Scriptures, the one thing that was most offensive to those who resisted all of that was the doctrine of assurance, the doctrine that we could be assured of our standing with God. And when you think about it, that makes, of course, perfect sense. Because anyone who is a perpetuator of a system of rituals and deeds that earned you favor with God, anyone who is a perpetuator of that system, they they cannot allow any assurance. You're out of a job. You have you have to constantly be in a state of flux, because if your deeds and your rituals are gaining you favor with God, there can never be, by definition, there can never be enough. Or you're done. And so that was what was the greatest offense to them, was this the, the idea that you could be certain of your standing with God. But this is good news for all people. This is for you. He is here to be yours. For, verse 11, For unto you, unto you, not unto them or unto some, unto you. You know, a birth announcement, when when our children were born, we didn't call grandparents and say, unto you has been born a grandchild. <laughs> it was born to us. But not so with the birth of Jesus. He's it, not unto Joseph and Mary. He's unto you. He's ours. He's our Messiah. Unto you is born this day in the city of David. Bethlehem, not Jerusalem, the city of David, a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Then verse 12, and we'll come back to verse 11. Verse 12, and this will be a sign for you. You will find the baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. Now don't think of sign there in some sort of mystical way. This is sort of this mystical sign. The angel, I think, was just giving a very practical sign. There, of course, next week, or um, we'll see um, in the next passage, that they're going to go into Bethlehem to find the baby. Now, how would they find one newborn baby in Bethlehem? Well, the swaddling cloths aren't anything abnormal. Swaddling cloths, that was just uh, the, the, the practice of wrapping a newborn up tightly where their, their limbs are kind of like a, a straitjacket sort of thing. But uh, what was unusual was that he was lying in a feed trough. And so... The angel is saying, this is how you'll find him. He is placed with the animals. He was born in the place of animals. He was not even born among humans. He was placed in a feed trough. That's how you'll find him. Look for a baby that looks like nobody wanted him. And that will be the Messiah. So let's look down at verse 11. Verse 11, is we're going to do kind of a holding pattern around verse 11 for a little bit. Because 11 is packed with with good stuff for us. For unto you is born this day in the city of David 
a Savior who is Christ the Lord. So first, let's look at um, at least three things that's said about Jesus here. He is called the Christ, He's called Savior, He's called Lord. First, let's look briefly at, at He's called Christ. Christ the Lord. Jesus Christ, or Christ Jesus. Christ is not Jesus' last name. Christ is, of course, His title. Christ is the Greek translation of the uh, Hebrew word Messiah. And this is His title. It means literally the Anointed One. Jesus the Anointed One. Anointed of God. Anointed for what? Anointed to be our prophet, our priest, and our king. Anointed to be those three things in ways in which no one else has ever been anointed to be those things. He's anointed to be our prophet. The human prophets would speak to us words from God. They were anointed to do that, but they were not anointed to speak words of God to us as coming from directly from the source. In other words, when Jesus, as He is our prophet, He speaks to us words of God because He is God. And so He's not bringing us a message from something outside Himself. He's giving us the message that is His. That's why when we see Jesus in His early ministry, He begins teaching and the people say, Who is this man? No one has ever taught like Him because He teaches with authority not as our scribes teach. That's what Mark says. Not as our scribes teach. Because His authority is His. So He's anointed to be our prophet. He's anointed to be our priest. Because no one else was ever anointed to do what Jesus does in the form of His priestly duties. He forgives sin. No priest, no human priest was ever anointed by God to forgive sin. Jesus forgives sin. Remember what the what the people would say about him when he healed the, the paralytic. He says, your sins are forgiven. Who is this? Who does he think he is to forgive sins? People can't do that. He's anointed of God to be our priest. He's also anointed of God to be our king. He's our king, not only in the sense that he is an everlasting king, his kingdom, his rulership over us will never end, but also he is anointed of God to be our king because he, unlike any other human ruler, he is the ruler of our hearts. No one else, no human, ever rules your heart. Public authorities, kings, presidents, prime ministers, they can rule your circumstances. They can rule aspects of your life. They cannot rule your heart. Only Jesus is the king that rules over our heart. So he is the Christ he is Christ the Lord. But it's before that, the angel says, He's born in the day in the city of David, a Savior. A Savior. So the word Savior is a word that necessarily carries with it the meaning of one who saves. That's what a Savior means, one who saves. And so when we think of being saved that also necessarily implies some sort of danger or some sort of peril or some sort of disaster from which we needed to be saved. So Jesus is the one who saves from 
this type of danger. This is the language of being saved is is very much old-fashioned Christian language. It's it's the type of language that if you've been around church, you've heard getting saved, being saved your whole life. Because it is just the lingo that we have often used in in speaking of what happens to us as we become Christ followers. And it's one of those things that I think has, has been used a lot, perhaps overused, but I think more more so than that, it's been underexplained. We've used this term a long time, and we've done, I think at least recently, we've done a very poor job of explaining what it means to be saved. I think the language is very good. It's biblical language. The Bible speaks to us in many places. For example, 1 Timothy 1.15 of, of being saved. Jesus came to save sinners. So um, there is, you do sometimes hear there are efforts that people sometimes make to sort of put a fresh angle on the language that we use. And recently I've noticed in the past few years a lot of people use the term rescuer, that we need to be rescued. Jesus is our rescuer. And I think that's good. That's very accurate. Nothing wrong with that. But again, the biblical language is being saved. And along with that, when you're saved, of course, there's you think of things... Just picture in your mind something to be saved from. You know, you you fall overboard off of a cruise ship in icy waters, and you know, what would people say about you? He needs to be saved. There's something that is going to end his life unless he's saved from it. That's Jesus saves us from something that is of great peril and great danger to us. So let's think about what he saves us from. I think that oftentimes in our failure to to properly define what Jesus saves us from, that sometimes we can begin to think of, of Jesus saving us from things that aren't what He came to save us from. And I think largely that oftentimes ends up being that Jesus sort of becomes the Savior to save us from an unfulfilled life. To save us from disappointments. From, to save us from incompleteness. That he is, he came to save us from a life that's a disappointment. You know, maybe the, our career is a disappointment. Maybe our family, our, our kids are a disappointment. They're not turning out the way we wanted them to turn out, and life is just disappointing. And and okay, look to Jesus. Find in Jesus your fulfillment, and so He becomes the Savior that saves us from an unfulfilled life. The other thing that I think oftentimes happens is Jesus can become the Savior who saves us from debilitating habits. Those things that we can't overcome on our own. Look to Jesus. And the alcoholic that just can't put the bottle down, Jesus delivers you from that. Or the uh, the person that just can't stop the recreational drug, Jesus delivers you from that. Or the pornography habit that you can't stop, or whatever it may be, the, the, that debilitating habit that you can't overcome, look to Jesus and He saves you from that. And I think that those two things together largely make up 
our understanding of what Jesus saves us from. And I want to just help us to see how dangerous that kind of thinking is. Because first of all, if, if Jesus saves us from an unfulfilled life, you know, not all unbelievers are living unfulfilled lives. There are a lot of believers that are living very fulfilled, very happy, very content lives. Maybe their lives are content because they've achieved their dreams. They dreamed big. They worked hard and they made it. Wrote a book about it and, and are reaping the benefits of, of a fulfilled dream in this life. Or, or maybe they're in the process of doing that. Or maybe they live in a culture that doesn't teach them to be constantly discontent like ours does. Our culture bombards you with the message of you must be discontent with what you have. You ever been to a third world country? and met unsaved people in third world countries that are happier than you? And there you are to tell them how you can find happiness in Jesus? And it's like that message just doesn't seem to be resonating? Because, uh, you know, that's why people, Christians often go to third world countries and, and fall in love with third world countries because the, the people are just content. Because they haven't been taught by their culture to be discontent about everything. And so the message that Jesus is here to give you a fulfilled life. I've even in this culture even presented the gospel to lost people in that context. And even in, the, in this culture, it doesn't resonate. I'm, I'm just fine. Jesus didn't, didn't come to save us from an incomplete life. Neither did he come to save us from a debilitating habit. Because, you know, I know lots of non-believers that have a lot of self-control. And their life is pretty well put together. And they're not slave to some sort of hidden habit. Now, we know that under the surface, that true purpose and true happiness is still not there. But at least their perception is not that they're lacking anything. So be careful when we phrase the gospel in those sorts of ways. Jesus is here to give you purpose. Yes. Jesus is here to free you from sin. Yes. But Jesus died to save you from death. Jesus died because your sin separates you from your Creator and from your Maker. You are separated from that which made you, from He who made you in His image. And so the drowning analogy is a good one. I think a good one too is, the one I'm thinking of is, is a three-day-old baby fawn in the woods that's separated from its mother. And there is no hope. There's wolves, there's foxes, there's, there's predators. There is no hope unless that fawn finds its mother. And so the angels show up. Jesus is here. Messiah is here. That's like saying to the fawn, your mother's right there. She's right there. Go around that bush, and she's right there. Now, the only difference in that analogy, of course, and as well as the drowning analogy, would be that in our case, it would be as though the fawn chose to be separated from its mother. But that's what Jesus is here to save us from, not from anything less than eternal death. Of course, fulfillment, purpose, happiness, 
All of that comes along with that, but that is not why Jesus came. He is our Savior to save us from the death that we ourselves have brought upon ourselves. So He's Savior. Secondly, He is Lord, who is Christ the Lord. Christ the Lord. This baby is Lord. It's interesting when we think back to last week's message, of course, Caesar Augustus, um, verse 1 of chapter 2, there's a lot of power. There's a lot of authority right there. Here's a person that with one command, hundreds of thousands of people have to pick up their lives and go and be registered to be taxed. That's a great deal of power. And then in the very next paragraph, here's a baby laid in a feeding trough, but he is Lord. Not Caesar. He is Lord. Do you know that is the confession that Jesus is Lord? That is the most fundamental and the most basic of Christian confessions. It doesn't get any more basic than that one. Jesus is Lord. Verse 13, suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God. I don't know what multitude means. I don't know if that means a thousand more angels appeared. I don't know if it means a billion more angels appeared, but there's a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom He is pleased. I was reminded, of course, of Philippians 2. Verse 11, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The confession that Jesus is Lord moves us to praise the Father. Just like it moves the angels to praise the Father. Glory to God the Father because Jesus is Lord. We hope you enjoyed this podcasted message from the Garden Fellowship. The purpose of the Garden Fellowship Church is to make disciples of Jesus Christ through loving God, loving each other, and loving our community. We hope you were blessed by this message. You can learn more about our church by visiting our Facebook page at facebook.com forward slash gardenfellowship or by visiting our website at gardenfellowship.org.